Morrison's mortgage mill serves up debt slaves to the banks and the decline and fall of the dollar empire. Coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 20th of May 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. On today's show, we're going to be looking at Morrison letting people access more superannuation to plough into the housing market and moves towards an alternative financial architecture getting real. So if you like the show, don't forget to hit the like button. That'll get it out more widely. You can subscribe and hit the notification bell to be alerted of new shows that come out. And also share this as widely as you can uh, throughout all social media and so forth. Uh, now, before we get into the topics of the day, we're filming this, of course, Friday morning as usual. Uh, by the time most viewers are watching this, either be it Saturday night or thereafter, Voting will have concluded on the election. Um, hopefully it's we'll over, a, thankfully. <laughs> hopefully we'll have a new government, a, yes. a change. Not saying it'll be necessarily any better and because we've got a lot of work to do mm. uh, so Hopefully far. a bigger crossbench that we can work with would be great. Yes. And in the days and weeks to come, we'll be saying a lot more about how exactly we're going to intervene to get our platform up on the agenda because we've been organising a lot of the candidates that are running from all parties uh, and non-parties, independents and so forth in all the areas where we intersect them. Yeah, it's just stunning. We, you know, we'll just have to see from the results that will be no doubt unfolding as people watch this, what the result is of up to 31% of the population not supporting the major parties, at least the lower house seats, and up to 50% I've heard reports mm. in the Senate. Hmm. So this is striking. It means mm. that there is a potential for a larger crossbench, what we say, now, you know, the government typically says, and the Labor, oh, this is going to lead to great instability within the parliament. That actually is not the case, Elisa. When you look around the world and you see, you know, multi-party governments formed, you actually end up with a better debate process, a better sifting process, and better legislation going through because there's actually more voices to, to uh, speak, yep. both for and against it. And good legislation will always get through. Mm. bad legislation is going to have problems and that's the way the system should work. Yeah, and it's particularly um, favoured when we have citizens engaging in politics, which yeah. has been our theme, of course, not only through this election, but all along uh, recruiting people to be part of the political process. That doesn't mean you have to run for parliament, but you engage with your MPs and with all kinds of local leadership that intersect the MPs as well. The real work begins once the election finishes at 6pm on that Saturday night, mm. tomorrow night. That's when the real work for us begins. Mm -hmm. The election is always a bit of a blip in a long-term perspective. And as people who watch this channel know, you know, we're encouraging people to get much more involved in politics because that's mm -hmm. where the real, the real power is. There's so much distortion that goes, so many lies, so much garbage that happens in election campaigns. The truth usually finds very little space to air its, mm. uh, air, air its, you know, air its head. Yeah. So. And, um we can get back to uh, getting onto some real uh, important issues again mm. without worrying about elections. Unrolling the real process of change because those numbers you put on the ballot paper, um, 
don't have much of a mark on changing history. It might be a tiny part of the process, but it's only one tiny minuscule part. So on to our first topic, um, and these are the issues which we'll be um, defining in the coming period. Morrison's mortgage mill serves up debt slaves to the banks. So of course we've had um, various promises from both sides of politics uh, on what to do about um, the housing situation in Australia, the shortage thereof, um, the mortgages with rising interest rates, uh, what impact it'll have on the banking sector. And of course, Scott Morrison's plan to prop up housing by allowing people to access up to $50,000 from their super for their deposit uh, is about saving the banks at a point when the whole bubble is ready to burst. The Labor plan uh, of 10,000 shared equity loans per year where the government contributes part of that deposit is basically the equivalent in a slightly different way. Both will keep prices up and that's what they're designed to do. So it's not about the people, it's not about solving housing affordability at all, quite the opposite. It is about the banks. We've turned um, your home into a financial asset and not primarily for you because you've got a million dollar home against which you can you know, borrow more money and so forth, but an asset on the books of the banks. Um, that is the key problem we've created for ourselves and our banks have become dependent on it uh, with over 65% of their lending in mortgages. Remember at the time of the global financial crash, figures for the US and the UK were only about 40% of bank lending in mortgages. So this is much, much worse. And when the value of those assets on the bank's books collapses, um, along with things like mortgage-backed securities where banks bundle up and sell and gamble on mortgages in that way, <clears throat> which is what caused the, triggered the global financial crash, um, the banks themselves will be on trouble, in, in huge trouble when those assets get wiped out. Now, of course, some are estimating that as interest rates rise, we could see 15 to 25% collapse in house prices. This has already, has already started in New Zealand, where there's been a 5% collapse in house values since November last year, after four rate increases. Uh, new mortgage commitments year on year to the end of February fell 23%. So, and of course, for the homeowners themselves, this means that um, declining house values can put them into negative equity. People can lose their home and you've got an entire another layer of social problems that comes in on top of the collapse of the banking sector. So, of course, you're talking about something on a much worse scale than 2008. Now, Liberal, the, you know, proposing this super access to do this, they must actually be quite desperate in mm. foreseeing all of this because senior Liberals have actually bagged this policy before, such as um, former Finance Minister Matthias Cormann in 2014, who said increasing the amount of money going into real estate by facilitating access to super savings pre-retirement will not improve housing affordability. It would increase demand for housing and would actually drive up house prices by more. Malcolm Turnbull in 2016 called it thoroughly bad and this week he said it serves to inflate property prices. So kind of obvious. Yeah, it's desperation moves at least. I mean, Morrison's, you know, we, well, this will be aired at the time the results are coming out, but he's desperate. Why did he bring these policies in you know, over the last nine years since he's been in government? It's because it is a bad policy. It's simply designed to 
to, to, to attract votes. It's got no sound yeah, basis whatsoever, just like the Labor Party. I mean, the Labor Party mm. can't say, well, listen, we're going to have to let housing prices deflate. We, you know, they're, they're too high. Uh, they won't come into an election saying that because that'll no. terrify people because people don't trust government as it is, hence why they're not supporting the two mm. major parties. Mm -hmm. And therefore, both the, both the Liberals and the Labor have come up with these policies that will continue to prop the system up. Now, the, the Labor Party, if it gets in, is going to have to deal with this overpriced uh, housing, housing un unaffordability problem because it can't continue. Mm. And we've said, you know, we put a press release out, uh, I think it was last week, you know, oh, sorry, the 3rd of May earlier, you know, about two, two, two and a half weeks, three weeks ago, you know, rip the Band-Aid off, how to manage an orderly fall in house prices so Australians can survive and thrive. Mm. And in this, we put forward the idea of a housing moratorium in the sense that we declared a moratorium on, the for, on foreclosures of family farms and also family homes, not investment properties, simply the places that people live mm. in order to keep uh, people in their homes so we don't have a fracturing of the community by people getting thrown out in the street, as happened in the United States in the last global financial crisis. So our policy is to look after people first, and then, then we'll put the banks into receivership, literally, uh, temporary receivership, in order to handle the fact that the value of their asset, which is, of course, your mortgage, is going to be put into decline. Now, these are hard issues to look at because people have been so used for 30 years mm. watching this housing bubble go up and looking at this fictitious value of their house allow them to borrow more money from the bank and so forth and live off the equity they have in their house. Well, this is all part of the financial speculative bubble that we've been part of for the last 30 to 40 years and everyone knows that when bubbles are blowing up, they will burst. So we're looking at, as a party, We've written the legislation for this. How do you bring the price of housing down to become more affordable? And look, the fact is that properties in Sydney are 15 times the median income. That is makes us makes Sydney the second most unaffordable place in the world to live. Mm. Right, I think it's behind Hong Kong, but uh, and then I think uh, Melbourne is fifth. Mm. Right. This is ridiculous when usually yeah. the average is between three and five times the median wage for the price of a house. So we're dealing with a significant problem. It's not going to come up in an election campaign, mm. right? It's not going to come up in, in this, this climate, but it will come up in the next yeah. very short period ahead. Yeah, the, the two parties basically put forward something like, you know, you can access your super or the government will share the equity because they know people desperately want to get into a market. They want to buy a home and they're just, you know, but playing on the fact that hopefully people don't think a bit more deeply about the fact that they're getting into a, a million dollar debt and they're going to be a debt slave to the banks, you know, and not see the fact that this is designed to prop up a corrupt and rotten banking system. And I want to go through some of the history of how that has occurred, which no surprise started at the point of the global financial crash where Rudd tripled the first homeowners grants. So, you know, that's as for the labour side of it, and there's a whole a raft of things that happened after, thereafter. But just to look at the last few years and what the Morrison government has specifically done uh, to prop up, I mean, they've bent over backwards to prop up the bubble, the financial bubble, um, while at the same time, 
if anything happens in the real world, world like fires sweeping through or floods, for instance, I mean, there was an article in the um, Australian on the 31st of May, uh, which said it has been 10 weeks since the flood and Lismore is still enduring a kind of post-disaster hell. So, you know, too bad if you're actually the victim of real crisis. If you're a bank and you're in trouble, we will do anything in our power to save you. Um, so just to run through some of the things, starting from early 2019, uh, where the IMF came out at that point saying Australia needed to prepare for a banking crisis due to the housing market contraction that had already started at that point, saying banks carry high exposure to residential and commercial real estate. So they were pointing to that factor. Uh, the Banking Royal Commission was going on at this time and had blocked interventions to prop up the market, which was leaving the government in exceedingly desperate situation, uh, including, you know, of course, banks having been exposed during that Royal Commission for fraudulent mortgage lending, so they couldn't keep rolling out the mortgages from the mortgage mill. Um, commentators were saying um, at that point with the Commission going on, lending may never go back to the way it was before. By May 2019, the Property Council called on the Reserve Bank and APRA to please let the banks loosen these strict lending policies. And then after the 18th May 2019 federal election, the Morrison government started already winding back those Royal Commission recommendations. They introduced the 5% deposit scheme, APRA scrapped mortgage assessments based on whether borrowers would be able to repay at a 7% interest rate. There were three RBA interest rate cuts by October. In July of that year, Assistant Treasurer Michael Sucker practically begged people to snap up a bargain in the housing market. In late October, the Prime Minister from the United States and Treasurer Frydenberg began literally begging the banks to ignore sound lending standards and beef up lending again. Uh, and that this time the government was preparing legislation to scrap the responsible lending laws which we were fighting on through this period. Uh, in 2020, of course, with the onset of COVID, the pretext for a massive expansion of quantitative easing money pumping into the bubble commenced. You had also the factor that many loans were deferred, equivalent to 93% of bank capital. So this came in as a mechanism as well. Uh, and in March 2020, APRA suspended bank capital requirements, allowing them to use their buffers to increase their lending. Uh, plus, deferred loans would not need to be treated as loans in arrears for capital adequacy for a period of one year. So it bought some time for the banks. Now, in April 2020, APRA warned that given the importance of mortgage lending to the balance sheet of the banking system, it is important for the resilience of the system that standards for new lending remain prudent and responsive to changing market conditions. And this was only revealed by a Freedom of Information request by The Australian. Um, so they were very, very conscious that we must protect the banks or everything could go. Uh, and banks, the banks were granted a temporary re reprieve on changes to the ethical code of practice devised after the Banking Royal Commission, all to keep this in place. And you had other things like coming into 2021, uh, such as 2% deposit scheme for single parent families. So there were various interventions like that peppered all through the way. But the problem is they've now hit a, a slight glitch in these last several months where because of rising inflation, uh, they cannot keep pumping in the money, right? They cannot keep reducing rates. They've had to start raising interest rates 
uh, and this is now bringing us to a, a severe crunch point. Yeah, Linda, Lisa, uh, we had a candidates meeting of our candidates for this last election last Thursday and I made the point then. What people have to understand is that we live under a banker's dictatorship. There's plenty of talk about dictatorships lately with the war in Ukraine and so forth. We live under a banker's dictatorship, which means the entire structure of how finance is looked at, looked at is under this bank, banker's dictatorship. Because we're part of the Commonwealth, it's all dictated by the City of London and Wall Street bankers. Every aspect, every aspect of the finances of this country are under a banker's dictatorship. And the problem with that is there's no solutions within that right now because they have written out the potentiality for public credit. Mm. Now, yep. just for example, you know, the government of this country raises about $600 billion a year for spending on various things within the budget. And when you start to break that down, they were crowing this or this last year about the fact that they've increased massive amount of increase in infrastructure spending, $17 billion out of a rolling 110 to 120 billion. Now, of course, that's matched by the states and the local councils. They also spend a huge amount in building roads and bridges and culverts and sewer systems and the very unsexy uh, infrastructure that, you, that we need to live by. But at 17 billion out of that 600 billion, a third of that is for social security and other health measures, of which you can look at the NDIS, for example, it's 25 billion out of a $600 billion budget. 454,000 people are on the NDIS out of about 4.4 million, right? And the budget there is 25 billion. Then you look at other aspects of this budget. Uh, 62 billion goes towards a COVID response and 42 billion on buying submarines that we can't use, mm. right? There's an enormous capacity within the budget for, for being able to fund what we actually need. But you think about it from a public credit point of view, what we've always said is that we have to have what's called a capital budget. A capital budget is a budget that's set separate to the normal operating budget that takes out all the expenditure on infrastructure, things like hospitals, roads and everything, mm. and that would be funded by public credit. If we had a national bank like the Commonwealth Bank did do in the, world, the Second World War, right? if it was to be capitalised, if our national bank would have written the legislation for this too, was to be capitalised by $100 billion in debentures. Mm. Now, that's one-thirtieth of the $3 trillion that's already in superannuation funds. There wouldn't mm. be any problem whatsoever to get the capital. That one-thirtieth, or $100 billion, would then be able to capitalise the bank. It could lend, at very conservative lending rates, up to $600 billion. That is the entirety of the Australian government's budget mm. for nothing but infrastructure and support for the development of roads, large-scale infrastructure and so forth. And so therefore you're taking that capital component out of the operating budget for the government and that means you can then free up large amounts of money necessary to support people on the NDIS. I mean, it, you know, there's just so much can be done in terms of the healthcare system in this country, support the, the, the functioning for, uh, you know, training many, many more health care professionals mm -hmm. because from personal experience, with the NDIS and from, from people we know have been involved in it, the biggest problem is that the money is sitting in their bank accounts, mm. but they can't get access to speech pathologists. They can't get access to occupational therapists because mm. there's not enough in the system. So there's structural problems from the point of view that there's not enough training, high quality training going in because of the limitations that the government's put 
into the operating budget uh, because of you know the 62 billion COVID response, the 42 billion on uh, uh, on, on defence and all this sort mm. of stuff. This is how this is what happens when you live under a banker's dictatorship. Yep. That this entire potential, as was done in our history in World War II, by the Commonwealth Bank to fund the massive war effort in order to protect ourselves mm -hmm. through the injection of credit into the economy, you know, so that the, 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 our national bank could literally lend money to the government, like was done during the war, to fund these infrastructure projects. So you don't get this uh, competition between the pool of taxes coming in and the mm -hmm. necessity for large-scale infrastructure. But this is what we're living under. We're living under a banker's dictatorship. They are trying to manipulate things in the pop because the public's ignorant about how public credit works. Mm -hmm. They think, oh, no, it's just, you know, it's just uh, funny money, right? You're just creating money out of nothing. Well, the banks do that now anyway, except they're lending it. 65% of their mortgage, you know, of their assets is in mortgages. They're lending it into inflated mortgages in order to keep propping up these, in, the, these fictitious profits. I mean, they're real profits, but they're coming in on the basis of you know, highly inflated fictitious values in housing. Housing should never have been made a commodity, a, a tradable commodity. Mm. It should have been a place where people live. But that's what's happened in, our, in the last 30 years under the neoliberalism policies of literally measuring wealth in monetary flows and in not in the physical economic output mm -hmm. of the country. Yeah. So this is what we're facing, mm. at least in terms of the bigger picture. And shifting to a credit system as opposed to the monetary system yes. is a complete, I mean, it, and we've done it before, as you've said, it's not some fantastical idea. You put the credit out, it transforms the economy and every business, all the infrastructure and different sectors of the economy uh, function at a higher level so this is generating more income into the budget, more taxes, you know, the flow of economic goods and services, uplifting the nation as a whole. Yeah. Um, so and, and you can support people. Like when we talk about a debt moratorium or, you know, a moratorium on foreclosures and family homes and farms and so forth, if you've got a public institution like a national bank supported by the assets of the nation, when Dennis and Miller first set up the Commonwealth Bank, he said, we didn't need capital mm. because... This this bank is guaranteed by the by the assets of the nation. It's yep. publicly owned, right? Yep. So when you declare a, a moratorium and foreclosure on family, on foreclosures on family farms and on, on houses and so forth, if you've got a national bank behind you, you don't have to be concerned about the fact the private banking system is going to try and manipulate things again for their own efforts because you've got a public mm. institution behind you. That's not in the equation yet. That's why we've been fighting for 30 years for a national bank because it is not allowing, it will not allow a banker's dictatorship to exist. Yep. And guess what? The Commonwealth Bank, under the leadership of Chifley and Curtin in World War II, did not allow the bank's dictatorship to exist through the various regulations that were brought in. The Commonwealth Bank was in charge as a public bank in charge of the private banks. It stopped their speculation mm -hmm. and the, the ability for them to try and wrought the potential inflationary situation that was during the war. The war. And I tell you what, <clears throat> if Labor's in power, <laughs> they are going to be hearing this needled constantly into yes. their ears of every MP. There's no excuse for the Labor Party. They've, no, got, the, they've got the history behind history. them. It's their history. Now, I want to keep talking about this theme, actually, but in the, under the next topic, because it, it's a continuation of the same idea. 
um, the decline and fall of the dollar empire. So we've been talking about this financial dictatorship and now I want to talk a bit about how it has transformed over time uh, and there's a real threat right now coming from a host of countries around the Russia sanctions, nations that have um, allied you know, either explicitly or implicitly with Russia over this um, and the BRICS group of nations and even broader. There's a real fear coming from uh, the US and the UK right now that their dollar system is going to be replaced. Now, um, let me just say from the outset, the sanctions against Russia are a threat to every nation because implicitly every nation that challenges the status quo can be pulled out of the financial system just like that. And actually, these sanctions are being used to usher in a new phase of the financial dictatorship. Uh, anyone that doesn't comply now with the rules-based order is just shut out and excised out of that dollar-based order. Um, now, since the global financial crash, which meant the effectively the entire global financial system was bankrupt at that point, that was widely acknowledged, there's been a number of transformations and metamorphoses that have taken place. So from bailouts immediately after the GFC to the whole invention of bail-in to confiscate depositors' savings to save the banks, um, to the period of the 20, late 2019 repo bailout, which we've written a lot about, where you had um, the entry of hedge funds as speculators to trade US Treasury bonds and so forth. This was already spelling the demise of the US dollar system. And then you had into 2020, um, the excuse of COVID used to create a whole host of new vehicles within which the Fed and the Treasury um, began to have this private-public merger to pump money through these new investment vehicles, not into the real economy that would have transformed and changed things, but into the banks to save the too-big-to-bail banking system. Now, on top of all those changes, you have the sanctions, iron fist, coming in to enforce the order, to desperately to try to keep this collapsing financial order afloat. Uh, however, as we'll go through in a moment, it is backfiring in a major way. So just on the sanctions front, uh, to remind people, of course, you've had uh, the confiscation of Russia's foreign reserves and a lot of countries see that as a threat to them. This could happen to us and they're pulling out of US dollar um, reserves. You've had Russia disconnected from the SWIFT uh, banking interbank, um, uh, interbank systems. You've had banks blocked, Russian banks blocked from issuing debt in overseas markets. Visa and MasterCard suspended services in Russia. Uh, a lot of trade has been halted using the mechanisms of the financial system. Now, US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made a speech uh, about all of these things and what they're aiming at which is much broader than just ostracising Russia, at the Atlantic Council, which, by the way, is the um, de facto spokesperson or lobby for NATO, on the 13th of April, which is very elucidating, she said, basically, we told Russia that having flouted the rules, norms and values that underpin the international economy, we will no longer extend to you the privilege of trading or investing with us. When Russia made the decision to invade Ukraine, it predestined an exit from the global financial system. And of course, Yellen's uh, got a particular, particularly important voice in this because she used to be the head of the Fed. So this epitomises this bringing together of the private and public forces to 
reimagine uh, re, uh, re the global financial order in order to keep it afloat to try to control the world. Mm. Yellen went on to say, it's worth considering the breadth of unmet global challenges that would benefit from greater cooperation of the kind we have mustered in confronting Russia. What did she mean by that? Well, she went on to clarify, it provides a chance to work to address the gaps in our international financial system that we are witnessing in real time. You know, in other words, there's gaps in our control here that we have to, you know, we have to ostracise countries like Russia that might dare to break from our rules-based order to such a degree that it clamps down on everyone else. Um, she said, we need to modernise our existing institutions for a new financial era. And the concluding comments by the director of the Atlantic Council's Geoeconomic Centre were uh, most revealing. He said, the goal is to help reimagine international finance for a new era. Now, it is backfiring, and the Economist, an Economist article on the 16th of April pointed to this, describing the growing discontent with the rules-based order. I mean, you've got things like the fact that despite all the hammering and coaxing, they've not convinced India, for instance, to support their sanctions against um, Russia, let alone China. Um, but the Economist says that this... Um, uh, growing discontent with the way the West is running the rules-based order uh, is a stunning rebuke of the West and increasingly the West is seen as decadent, self-serving and hypocritical. And and just the, just the rules-based order is not international law run no. by the United Nations. No. People should be very clear. This rules-based order is run by the, the banker's dictatorship. If you don't follow what we say... Our rules. Our rules you're going to be on the outer and mm -hmm. we're going to enforce those rules with an iron fist. Yeah. Now, Elisa, in 2015, I participated in the Civic BRICS com uh, conference in Russia. I went to Moscow and participated in that conference. And this was very much the discussion then because Russia and China reject the idea of a unipolar world. That is, everything is run by the West, the Britain and uh, the United States. They rejected that and they were already looking at an alternative to the SWIFT system, already looking at different ways of trading not based upon the US dollar because they did not like the fact that this was and has been a dictatorship under US policy. And unless, and the other thing is if, US, if the US does not continue to support or the US dollar is not continued to be supported on a global level, this directly affects the power of the United States and they know it. So That's it. Their, their system is coming under enormous... Uh, attack, and what's happened with what's happened with Russia and all the all the actions that have been taken against Russia is only reinforcing what was already in the minds of many many countries around the world yep. about the sheer bastardry mm. of what the Western system is about. Yeah, we're in control. You know, this unipolar world. We can tell everyone what to do, and they just say it outright. And we're kicking you out of the financial order. Sorry. Yeah, you've got two large two large countries, China and Russia and many others, which we'll go through now, no doubt, you know, saying we don't want to put up with this. Yeah. Well, look, here, I've got to put up on the screen here two maps, and this is a visual representation of what we're depicting here. Now, these maps are side by side on a web page of the Atlantic Council, accompanied by an article by Janet Yellen. So, of course, we were just talking about her speech on these issues. Um, so, this first map, uh, the... Um, it's the UN resolution votes to suspend Russia from the United Nations Human Rights Council. So these are the countries uh, in blue here 
who were in favour of cutting out Russia, which is mostly the Western nations. Uh, in red and grey, you've got the countries that were opposed to Russia uh, being kicked out, and that includes um, most of Eurasia and Africa, and the grey abstained from that vote, which means they weren't willing to condemn Russia, and so that's Africa, South America, and most of Asia. Um, so you see here, as the Economist article was pointing out, that most of the developing or emerging world, as they call it, uh, is not happy with well, what is being a, done to Russia. There's been a long history of this. If you go back into the 70s, before the rise of China and to China's Belt and Road and facilitating the building of infrastructure globally, you only had two Western institutions that would lend money, the IMF and the World Bank. Mm. So if, if a country went to the IMF and said, we need some money to develop ourselves, first of all, it would say to the country, oh, you can only be allowed to develop these certain things in your country. And secondly, they would conditionalities on the money to make sure that those countries forever stay indebted to the West. So they're always under some form of dictatorial control, which is, again, this banker's dictatorship. So a lot of these countries have had a long history, a long experience of dealing with the West. So this mm. is nothing new. Mm -hmm. All is, It's just coming to a head right now. And in 2015, when we held our international conference, which discussed the rise of the BRICS, and yeah. at that time the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank had just been created. Um, but also, as uh, a follow-on from that, you had the BRICS New Development Bank, yeah. the Shanghai Cooperation Bank, Organisation Bank, the Silk Road Development Fund and the New Maritime Silk Road Fund. And you can read more about all of this in the uh, latest issue of the Australian Alert Service where I've written this up. Um, so, you know, you no longer had just the IMF and the World Bank. So the, the existing financial order was already at that time being challenged. And we were on the forefront of promoting this in terms of a new fair and just financial architecture, which is crucial. Um, and let me put up the second map, just following through on that one that we just sure, saw, showing the countries that um, refused to kick Russia out of the global order. This map is from the same Atlantic, page, uh, Atlantic Council webpage, but this is Belt and Road Initiative signatories. So you can see the overlap, because here you have in the red the countries that have signed uh, memorandums of understanding with China on the Belt and Road, and that's um, really all of all of Africa just about, plus most of South America, Asia, from Southeast Asia to Western Asia and the Middle East, most of Europe and even New Zealand. Um, Russia is marked as green, unclear of whether it's signed an MOU, but it's irrelevant. I mean, Russia and Putin has been promoting to integrate the Eurasian Economic Union with the Belt and Road, the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation and a whole bunch of other regional development groupings for Eurasia. So they should really be there in red. Um, now, uh, this was raised explicitly in terms of the challenge to this financial order in a paper that I've just read, uh, which was published by Cambridge University by two US academics. Again, you can read more of the details in the alert. Um, but they asked the question, <clears throat> can BRICS, which is of course Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, de-dollarise the US-led global financial system. And you could see um, the concern about this was palpable both from the US and from the UK side. Now, they, um, they made very, very clear that undermining the US dollar means undermining the global role of the United States. They said the US relies upon the dollar's dominant currency status to credibly exercise economic statecraft 
and sanction its adversaries. But the rules-based order is being undermined by a, quote, rising power coalition of the BRICS. The BRICS have already started trading in local currencies amongst themselves. They've established the new development bank, which I mentioned before, for development finance. They've established a common payment framework. And among some BRICS nations, you have, uh, for instance, the oil trade being started, started to be conducted in renminbi in Chinese currency. You have a China-Russia cross-border messaging system. You have a push for non-dollar reserve systems where countries keep their foreign reserves in other currencies. So there's a lot of these things and they have really gotten a kick into high gear with the result of the sanctions on Russia. So the BRICS have exercised what this paper refers to as, a, as collective financial statecraft to challenge the existing liberal international order. That's from the words of the report. Um, this can serve as a foundation for a broader coalition, the report says, to challenge US hegemony, hear, hear. Uh, and they refer to the fact that this is not just the BRICS, not just those five countries, but an extra 35 uh, countries involved in what's called BRICS Plus, so um, concentric circles of other nations that have a certain level of engagement with the BRICS, plus the Eurasian groupings that I mentioned before that Putin's trying to draw into an alliance with the Belt and Road. They uh, identify the pivotal states in unleashing all of this da, 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 as China and, and Russia. Russia. You know, the enemies number one and two of this rules-based power. Um, but they even add that country or regions like the European Union have been forced to move to dollar alternatives when, for instance, Trump imposed sanctions on Iran in order to keep um, purchasing oil they had to look at, the European countries had to look at alternatives to the dollar so that mm. they could still do it. So yep. even their friends and allies are being driven out of this uh, arrangement. And they conclude that the real risk of, quote, finance migrating to an alternative financial system, unquote, will lead to declining US ability to utilise sanctions and will, quote, challenge US ability to advance its political and economic values in the global system and preserve a soft power edge. So this is an admission of exactly what you were saying. And this is Craig. what, this, there's another very, very important issue here, Lisa, which people have to really get alarmed about. In fact, it is that these people, these forces, these bank dictatorships are not afraid of going to war, even nuclear war, if they think, think that their system is going to be so challenged. What do you think is going on with Russia? It is to do, it is, why is there so much of an attack against Russia? Because the intention was always to destroy Russia. It's always to put them in a position where they can weaken Russia and China because of the challenge to their global financial dictatorship, this particular power. Now, it's very important that people understand what's going on here, and I recommend that people look at our sister... Uh, uh, program the Citizens Insight and watch the interviews by former diplomat, you know, retired diplomat John Lander that, that, that he's done, right? Because what he makes the point, the very important point, is that it's more than likely that Australia will become the proxy in a war with China, just like Ukraine is a proxy in the war between the West and Russia today. It's not going to be Taiwan, it's going to be Australia. And that's a very, very serious uh, idea because mm. no one in our country is even thinking about the possibility of Australia being in a war with China. Of course, we would lose it because we have no capacity to defend ourselves against. And why would you anyway? Because there's no, you know, people say, oh, well, China's going to take us over. No, 
at the moment, our major issue, the major people, countries that are interested in, in, in Australia is the United States and the United Kingdom. Most of the foreign ownership is from those two countries, not China. Mm. And there's a lot of disinformation, of course, being propagated from this election campaign. But the key thing is very, very important. Educate, people should educate themselves from John Lander's experience mm. as a former, former uh, diplomat who was in China mm. for a long period of time and find out what the reality is of where we're heading on this. Yeah, if you, if you don't want our country to look like what Ukraine does right now, educate yourself on what yes, the real issue absolutely. is because they would fight China to the last Australian, um, mm -hmm. as they've made very clear um, in the case of fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. And, you know, how committed are we to upholding this rules-based order that's destroying our country in any case? Uh, are we willing to annihilate our country to protect that Anglo-American system, I think not. And I urge you also to call in for a free copy if you haven't already of our Australian Alert Service. If you've seen it before, get a subscription. There's an article, an excellent article in here as well, What is NATO, which connects the war drive into exactly what we were discussing here in terms of the collapsing financial order, because the two are intricately interconnected. Um, and there's some you know, really stunning historical examples of the fight between Roosevelt and Churchill, etc., for uh, control of the global order and how the interaction of countries would occur under a colonial controlled unipolar system or a, a harmony of nations all working together to achieve the best approach. Now, I do like the article on the back page, John Curtin, you know, without national banking governments are not sovereign. I mean, this is what these guys knew back then, you know, 60 years ago now, mm -hmm. or 70 years ago. Boy. Yep, that's right. that's the issue. Actually, you know, control of finance and financial issues, which is why it's one of our top issues in this mm. campaign, and always, um, you know, tends to have a, a huge impact from the top down in transforming and dictating every other policy. So we have yep. to focus on that. It's about all we've got time for this week. A lot of material in there, Elise. There is, but <laughs> contact us for more. And we'll have more to say next week, of course, in the aftermath of the election. So make sure you stay tuned, like and share this show as much as you can. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.